Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast, week 22, as we read through the Bible in a year. Uh, we have Aaron Downs back with us, and uh, AJ, as normal. AJ's been real consistent. Me and Aaron have been a little in and out, but that's all right. Aaron, how's it going? I see you have two books there. What What are those? That's going well, Matthew. Thank you for asking. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I asked just about the books. <sighs> That's true. You don't care about me. You no. you only care about my books. Yeah, I'm I'm big book guy, so I was kind of fixated on the books. Yeah. Well, I brought two books on the podcast today that I'd like to talk about with you. They're both by a couple of guys named Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. And the first book is called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. This is the fourth edition, and it's a little book that teaches people how to read the Bible. I think it's a really helpful book. If you're looking for a book on biblical interpretation or practical hermeneutics, whatever you want to describe it as, this would be my recommendation as the go-to book. Um, It's really simply written. It's very clear. There are 13 chapters, and uh, I would just recommend it for people who want to be better readers of the Bible. Quick question. I've heard the word hermeneutics thrown around a lot. I don't know what that is. What is that? Hermeneutics? It's interpreting. Hmm. I don't know. So I I could be wrong, but I think it goes back to the Greek god, the messenger god, Hermes. I don't know if that's how you pronounce the name. I think so. Um, But the messenger god interprets or delivers the, the messages of the gods, right? Um, so I think it's connected to that. So in more popular culture in the Harry Potter series, there's a girl named Hermione. So you kind of hear the Herm piece of that. And whenever she says something, you can generally trust her interpretation of events. And it's no surprise that whenever she comes to a conclusion and her friends ask her, how did you figure that out? She's it's always at the library somewhere. So she's reading a book and she figures it out. So hermeneutics on a really basic level, we could just say is the study of interpretation. Uh, there are more philosophical aspects to this. There are more practical aspects to it. Um, and it's not only dealing with the Bible, but hermeneutics is a, a broader field as well. But Generally, when you hear it in the Christian world, we're talking about biblical interpretation. Thank you. The second book that I have is called How to Read the Bible Book by Book, A Guided Tour. And this volume goes through every book of the Bible, and it sets that book within the the larger story of the Bible. So in just a few pages, they give an overview of the biblical story, and then they go book by book. And for each book, they give some orienting data uh, that kind of give a thumbnail of the book. And then they give you an overview that introduces key concepts and themes. And then they give specific advice for reading each of the books. So as you go book by book, there will be specific advice. And then they give you a walkthrough section by section where they summarize what's going on in that section. And then they'll give you a few things to pay attention to. So I had the, I had gotten this book several years ago when I taught a class at Eden on hermeneutics and reading the Bible because I wanted to find a good resource that I could give people to pick up if they wanted to read through the Bible by themselves but weren't sure about how to do it or they wanted a little extra help. And I, I remember skimming through it and thinking it was really, really good, so I would recommend it. And then it's been on my shelf for a long time. And I was examining my hermeneutics section as I prepare a class on hermeneutics, and I pulled it off, and I was reminded about how good it is. And I was a little upset with myself that I haven't been pulling it out every time we've done our Bible reading. Uh, So as I've looked through it again, I would just recommend this as a really helpful tool. Now, the first book you mentioned, uh, it's the fourth edition? Yes. Now, is that... Do you think they nailed it with that edition, or should we be waiting for the fifth one? I don't know. There may be a fifth edition out. I picked this one up in like 2014. Mm. I don't know when it was published. Yeah, 2014 is when this edition was published. Well, you got it hot off the presses. I did. Um, 
So there may be a fifth edition out there. I think, I don't know if this is true. I think they kind of say 10 years is kind of the shelf life of a book like this. And you kind of need to update it a little bit. You know, this this book has a chapter on Bible translations. So chapter two is the basic tool, a good translation. There have been translations that have come out or been updated since 2014. So for example, the Christian Standard Bible that we use was published in 2017. That was a major revision of the Holman Christian Bible. But then there's now a 2020 update to the Christian Standard Bible. So Updates like that require there to be updates to books like this. Mm, okay, so it's not because they didn't get everything out of the Bible for what it's worth. It's more so for like translations and stuff. Yeah, translations, and then it might lean into more uh, modern conversations. So, for example, if they're talking about issues in interpretation and there are various fads that have been going on or challenges to biblical interpretation that have been raised, you know, since the previous printing, they might address some of those things. Hmm. It looks like the fourth edition is the most recent one. Okay. Yeah. So I, you know, the first one was 1981, the second one, 93, then 2003, then 2014. So it kind of has been every 10 10, 11 years. So maybe there will be another one, 2024, 2025. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it would be worth picking up the edition that's out instead of waiting for the possibility of an edition. And they do have both of these books as an audiobook. Oh, great. Too. So if, if that works for you, I don't know if this is the best type of book to have yeah. an audiobook for, but that's there. It's so I would say if you want to, I, I would think the how to read the Bible for all it's worth would be a decent audiobook, but you might also want the print edition so you can use it as a reference guide. So for example, if you're reading through the Psalms, you can look just at the chapter on the Psalms in this and find it pretty easily. I think the how to read the Bible book by book, that would be interesting to get it on audiobook because it would essentially be like listening to a summary of the Bible book by book. So that would be helpful in its own way, but it would maybe be a little harder to utilize that format if you're trying to read the Bible or listen to the Bible and just pull up the section that you want. You know, audiobooks are sometimes hard to navigate anyway. Uh, so maybe maybe it would be worth listening to all the way through. It probably would be, but it wouldn't be helpful as a reference tool. So for our listeners, maybe it would be helpful if I just read a section out of this that correlates with our reading. Fire away, chief. All right. So obviously the breakdown that they have won't line up perfectly with our Bible reading breakdown. But since our Bible reading is ending in 2 Samuel 10 for the for the Old Testament, I'll just read the section that starts there, okay? So it says, Note how the account of David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah is told in detail. It is set up in chapter 10, recounted in chapter 11, and condemned in chapter 12. So there we have a little bit of a structural notation. And watch for the irony in chapter 11. The faithful foreigner Uriah honors an unfaithful Israelite king. The foreigner retains sexual purity during war, while the Israelite king dallies with his wife. The king, who has not gone into battle himself, sends the faithful soldier to his death in battle. The king is portrayed throughout as one who is accountable to God for his actions. But in contrast to Saul, David repents and is then filled with remorse over the dying child, the result of his sin. So there's some interesting things to catch on to that maybe you wouldn't catch on to just by reading it. But then it goes forward. This event sets in motion the rest of the story, chapters 13 through 20, in two ways. First, watch how illicit sexuality, murder, and intrigue are multiplied in David's family as Nathan's prediction is fulfilled. In turn, there's rape, fratricide, treachery, rebellion, seizure of David's concubines, and civil war. And the fissures between North and South portrayed in 19 through 2026 anticipate the unbridgeable chasm relayed in 1 Kings 12. A second, and second, observe how this whole series of events is related to the question later raised by Bathsheba in 1 Kings 120, who will sit on the throne of my Lord, the King, after him. So I think these little sections don't go fully in depth in interpreting these things, but they guide your reading through it. And I think that's really, really helpful. 
Do you want me to read the John one? Yes. Okay. I think this is also helpful. Again, it just gives you some things to pay attention to that maybe you wouldn't otherwise. So what's our reading for John? 7 through 10. Okay. So the the breakdown here is 7, 1 through 10, 21. Perfect. And then 10, 22 through 42 is super short. Can I read them both? I'll allow it. Okay. Thank you. It's a, it's a new host. You can do that apparently. For the Feast of Tabernacles, John selects narratives where Jesus deliberately fulfills the three great symbols from Exodus celebrated in various ways during this feast in Jerusalem. One, the water from the rock. Two, the light, pillar of cloud, fire, that guided the Israelites. And three, the giving of the divine name. For background, especially see Zechariah 14, 6 through 9, 16 through 19. The concluding narrative, giving sight to a blind man, illustrates how Jesus is the light of the world. The Jewish leaders now threaten to put out of the synagogue any who confess Jesus as the Christ. As you read the whole narrative, note how Jesus is regularly the cause of division in Israel. This narrative climaxes with the formerly blind man and the Pharisees standing in marked contrast with regard to Jesus, to which Jesus responds by telling the Pharisees that he himself is the great messianic shepherd foretold by the prophet Ezekiel. Note how it ends. Jesus is the cause of division. The Feast of Dedication celebrated the Maccabean restoration of worship in the Second Temple after it had been desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes. This is an aside. I think he sacrificed a pig in the Holy of Holies. Who did that? Antiochus Epiphanes. Oh. Pretty sure that's what he did. It was therefore a feast where Jewish... so, So the Feast of Dedication celebrates the cleansing of the temple pretty much from what I understand. It was therefore a feast where Jewish patriotism and messianism ran high. Know how Jesus in this context presents himself in the temple courts as Messiah and Son of God, which again brings division in Israel. Some would now seize him, others believed him. So that's an example from two sections of the kind of notation that you would find in the breakdown of the paragraphs. That is helpful. Might have to pick up that book by book volume. What's your opinion of the the book, Matthew? after these two brief selections. I think it sounds great. Um, I'll probably just read through that instead of the Bible. No, nice. not really. I'll, I'll read through the Bible. I don't instead. think it would be bad to read through something like this because you'd be able to get the whole Bible in terms of the like flow and content in a short amount of time and with some explanatory notes. So, you know, I think maybe that would be the benefit of getting the uh, audiobook. Because you can listen to it while you drive. Right. Mm. Yeah. Just one credit. How much is the print copy on, on that little bookstore that you guys kind of go to? Books are us. How to read the Bible for all it's worth is 20 bucks. The other one is a little cheaper, I think. 16 Nice. So I'm being curious now, now that I actually have the written thing the guy that was just like running around and the guy was like, stop running. And he's like, no. And then he stabs him. That's what happened, right? Where is that? Well, there, there's a guy who is chasing another guy. Yeah, he was to fast. kill him oh, he's to overtake to kill him. him, and the other guy was saying, "You know, we don't need to be fighting here." So it's the start of the division between the northern and the southern kingdom. Uh, so Saul's people and David's people, essentially, and you know these people are all Israelites. So the guy being chased kept saying, stop, I don't want to kill you, and I don't want to face your brother, right? Uh, the guy wouldn't stop, and so uh, the guy being chased killed him. Do you remember what chapter that's in? Yeah. 2.18, he was swift of foot as a wild gazelle. He's a fast guy. In chapter 26, verse 21, Saul makes a kind of sad confession at the end of his life. He says, I've played the fool and I've erred exceedingly. And I thought that was an interesting contrast to the Saul that we find in the New Testament, renamed Paul. And he said at the end of his life, he wants to say, I've fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. Two Sauls that we know of in the Bible. And so the way they finish their lives are opposite. And I think that's kind of interesting to see that contrast and realize that, you know, even as we look at, you know, chapter 31, where Jonathan dies the same time as Saul, 
you know, we're reminded that it's appointed for all men to die. And Psalm 49 says that death comes to the wise and foolish alike. And I think that's, it's something that makes you think about how you live your life and how you want to look back over your life. Some thoughts for meditation there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not anything any of us want to think about that often, probably. Uh, but it is hard when you observe the, someone's end of life reflection and it's so sad. Uh, and, and it is an encouragement to make choices to live in a way where you can reflect on your life and, and see faithfulness to the Lord, not disobedience and foolishness. As we go through Second Samuel, we kind of see David in the background at the start of it, and we see him once again showing honor to King Saul uh, by some gruesome ways, really, we might say, as he executes the individual who essentially did a mercy-killing, assisted suicide action for King Saul, apparently. Uh, but David is really in the background for a lot of this. And then he comes to the foreground as God covenants with David in 2 Samuel 7. And this is a key text for the development of Israel's history, for the development of redemptive history. Uh, the, this kind of text is referenced later on in the Bible as God's relationship to David is really established here. And it's striking that after God makes all of these promises to David, we get into chapter 8 and we have a summary of David's victories with the summary statement twice in verse 6 and then in verse 14 that the Lord made David victorious wherever he went. Uh, and then in chapter 9, we see David once again showing kindness to the house of Saul. We see him again in chapter 10 being victorious. Um, but then we get to chapter 11, and here we see David being unfaithful to the Lord. Now, this may shock us. It might surprise us, unless we've been reading carefully all along the way. Uh, if we remember back in Deuteronomy 17, God's chosen king over Israel was not to have many wives. But in chapter 3 of 2 Samuel, we get this list of sons that were born to David in Hebron, and he has one, two, three, four, five, six children from six different wives and concubines. And then, you know, a few verses later, he's saying to this guy who's about to defect from Saul's camp, if you're really defecting, bring back my previous betrothed Michael, Michael so I can have another wife. And she's already married to another guy. And, and that guy follows this defector all along the way in tears and he gets sent back home so David can take Michael and and then it's no surprise later when David's dancing before the ark of the Lord that Michael's bitter toward him right so even there we start to see a David who is not living a life of sexual fidelity in accordance with the commands of the Lord so we have hints along the way and in chapter 11, we see things coming out really clearly. I was going to ask about that because like in chapter 5, once he uh, kind of becomes king, uh, yeah, 5.13, then it's just like David took more concubines and wives yeah. from Jerusalem, yada, yada. I'm just like, you know, you said that it was previously whatever, condemned or the instruction from God was to not do that. Mm -hmm. Why isn't, why isn't God like, stop doing that? Cause like once, once he was like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to upgrade the tent of that ark. I'm going to build it a better house. And God's like, don't do that. I don't need that. The tent's fine. You know, he corrects him, mm -hmm. but why don't we see, I don't know. I was confused. I'm like, why don't we see him be like, Hey, Put some of those women back. You have too many of them. Like, why doesn't that happen? Or, like, it doesn't seem like it, like, obviously the Bathsheba thing is, like, a problem, like a specifically addressed problem mm -hmm. that gets between him and God. But it's, like, before that, it's, like, in this situation, say, chapter 5, was it a sin that was a hindrance between him and God? But it seemed like he still was, like, 
like clean with God, kind of, but then kind of not. I'm I'm confused about that. Yeah, I I would say the Bathsheba incident is an escalation, right, of the pattern of sin because there he goes so, so far as to orchestrate the murder of this woman's husband. Uh, you know, I I think we can all be puzzled sometimes as to why God does or does not immediately enact judgment. You know, David was puzzled about this when they were moving the ark in chapter 6, right? And God immediately brings about judgment on individuals for, for touching the ark. These are questions that we have, but I, I would just default to say that the narrative is not telling us everything that there is to know. It's necessarily selective, and we don't know whether or not there were warnings from God about this or, or how to process all of that. Well, we do know that when Israel demanded that they have a king, God warned them that the king would take their land and their tithe and their mm-hmm. daughters to be part of the harem or whatever. So yeah. this could just be a little bit more broader than just David too. Like it, you know, sometimes God, for his own purposes, we don't really know, but let sin continue to bring about judgment and consequences happen because of the choices that, that the king will make. Yeah, I I think that's a good answer because it's God allowing the judgment to come in a sense. So you're, but uh, you know, it's, it's tough a little bit there because David is now God's anointed king. Uh, But regardless, I think there's nothing positive affirmed about this and we ought to interpret it as a, as an unrighteous thing. Right. But I guess I'm just hung up of where it's like it didn't seem like it interfered with David's relationship with God, at, at least from what the text is. Again, not until you know he kills Bathsheba's husband and does all that. Like you said, that's an escalation. But prior to that, it's just kind of like, yeah, whatever. Like whatever. Well, again, I would just want to say that the the storyteller has to be selective. And the fact that the storyteller takes so much time to talk about this incident with Bathsheba requires that he doesn't spend time talking about a whole lot of other things. So it's amazing how short David's army victories are described and summarized in chapter 8. But then in chapter 11 and 12, you have this really long, drawn-out explanation of one event. So I wouldn't say that it's not important. I'm, I would just say the narrator is focusing on different things. And and it's not to say that there weren't problems because of the multiple wives up to this point, because we see problems between David and Micah at the end of chapter 6. And, and God's relationship with them is brought into it, because it's as David is dancing before the Lord that there's this dispute now between David and his wife. So I, I wouldn't take the summary statement that David took wives and concubines as an indication that it wasn't a problem. It's just not where the narrator chose to emphasize the problem. Well, why why was it being brief? They have a paper shortage or something back then? Well, you can only say so much, well, why? right? I mean, he could have said more. Well, he could have said more about all of the battles as well. Right. Why didn't he? Because you can only say so much, right? Yeah. Um, Could have said more, but then how does he, that? Sure. But then how does that tie into the whole like the Bible is perfect and God inspired? Because then it's like, well, maybe they left stuff out that's important. But then it's like, well, apparently not. If the Bible's inspired by yeah. God, then it should be perfect. Yeah, and I would say it is perfect. You know, we might want to know more details and we might have more questions, but we don't always get what we want, right? And Isn't that we, a song? Yeah, it would be. Probably. We, d- we do get a full explanation of the David and Bathsheba incident. So if, if you're saying, I want to know what God thought about David and his non-permissible marriages, we have one that's fully in depth. Right. Don't kill a guy. Everything and, up to, up and to that don't commit okay. adultery. In adultery, and I think it's probably right to say this is a forced sexual encounter. Um, that that is something that is condemned in these texts, and I think that's a condemnation we need to keep paying attention to. Um, 
at the time that we're recording this, just two days ago, a, an investigation into the Southern Baptist Convention was released. Uh, the report was released, and one of the vice, well, now former senior vice presidents of the North American Mission Board has credible allegations that he essentially did something close to this, minus the murder, to a mentee couple where, where the wife is his daughter's age. We need to pay attention to these things and not minimize that the Bible is making clear statements of, of morality here. Uh, it doesn't make clear statements of morality in every action David took, but it's certainly making one here. What do you think about them concubines, AJ? I think you said it best last time, more wives, more problems. I mean, you see that in David's life. The more that he's he has, the more problems that he has. Yeah. And I think we shouldn't ignore this. We can't get into the text yet. But David has multiple children with multiple wives. One of those sons rapes one of those daughters. What I'm trying to say is that often the fruit of sin doesn't show up right away. Sometimes you don't have a clear realization that something is sinful until you start to reap the fruit of that sinful action. And, and maybe that's part of the lesson here. I think certainly we see that with the lives of the patriarchs where they'll commit sinful acts and it's not explicitly condemned, but later on we see the fruit of that act and it's purely wicked. It's sinful. It brings death into the world. And a lot of David's actions here do the exact same thing. So maybe sometimes that's the judgment is just the unwanted fruit of bad actions. It's like that's the judgment in and of itself. You kind of get what you have coming. Yeah, absolutely. You know, James talks about this, about sin bringing forth death, right? This desire that brings out sin and that sin gives birth to death. Paul talks about this as well. And I think that's the way we ought to look at our lives. Sometimes we like to think because there's not an immediate consequence, God doesn't care what I'm doing or um, it's not that big of a deal. But often all we're seeing is the seed of the sin. We're not seeing the fruit that's going to come down the way. And uh, I think this is a good time for us to reflect on our own lives and say, are we paying attention to what, what we're sowing in our lives? Uh, because as Jesus said, if you sow the wind, you you reap the whirlwind, right? Like it, it'll be small and simple now and bring really hard things down the road that, w- that we'll have to deal with. Uh, so this is something we should all consider as we make moral decisions. I've thought about that. Uh, you know, my guy, JP, he says that, you know, I'm coming from a different perspective. He's like, nobody gets away with anything ever. No. You, you just don't. Yeah, and I, I think that allows us to just lean into the truths in Proverbs, for example, where God, in creating the world the way that it is, you know, wisdom has been woven into the fabric of the universe, some might say, Lady Wisdom has. And when you violate the way God made the world, certain things happen. Yeah. You know, that's just the way God made things. And so, yes, we need to talk about sin as offenses against God, right? We want to think about the way that sin um, damages, breaks our relationship with God. But we also want to think about the fact that God didn't make the world for sin to fit into it. And so when we sin, it, it brings forth death, different kinds of death. Um, and, and it's often bigger than the action that we took. On this David Bathsheba passage, I'm quoting Thomas Watson, an idle person is the devil's tennis ball, which he bandies up and down with temptation till at last the ball goes out of play. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about that at some length, probably. You know, I always grew up hearing sermons about how David wasn't fulfilling his responsibility because he wasn't out on the battlefield. That may or may not be true. You know, I don't know that we're to imagine every time there's a battle, the king is out on the battlefield, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's hard to say, um, but that makes sense. I just think we could find that truth in a lot of places. Um, but yeah, right on. Quick question about that quote. Do either of you guys play tennis? Nope. I uh, think I would like to follow tennis. I haven't played since high school PE no. classes, even though I think in 2018, 
Rich Penix got me a tennis racket for my birthday. And about every July, we text about the fact that we still have not yet played tennis. Uh, so it's still, it's in my closet. It still has the like packaging on it. So Rich, if you're listening, let's get a tennis match scheduled before July. Well, if he's busy, I'll play. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. Now there is a book called The Inner Game of Tennis that is written by a tennis coach, I believe, but has very little to do with tennis. And it's a lot more on the psychological aspects of um, development as a player and as a person. So I'm, I've sort of been listening to a podcast called Against the Rules. A little caveat that there's a good amount of explicit language by this guy in there, but it's a podcast connected to Malcolm Gladwell's stuff, Pushkin Industries, and he has three seasons out right now. I've listened to two out of the three, and it's it's really interesting, um, but he referenced it, and so I picked it up. Looking forward to reading it. Anything you guys want to talk about from the Gospel of John? Our text includes, or our reading includes, a section of the text uh, that my Bible has in brackets with a footnote on it. Do you guys have that same thing in like 753 through 811? Yes. What does yours indicate, Matthew? It says earliest manuscripts do not include it. Uh, I'd have to read the footnote. And since we have the same Bible. That is remarkable. Yours <laughs> looks way same. newer. <laughs> oh. Hey, mine not. survived a house fire. That's why it looks a little ratty. It also stopped a bullet one time. No, no, no I don't believe that. <laughs> yeah, the main thing I want to talk about from our John reading is this disputed text. Um, are you guys familiar with this story? Yeah, it's uh, whoever doesn't have sin throw the first stone, and then everybody kind of goes away because they're like, oh, man, I yeah. have sin. Yeah, so these individuals bring this woman who is apparently caught in adultery, uh, and they have her stand in the center. They come up to Jesus, and they tell Jesus that this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. So pretty much caught red-handed, from what it sounds like. And they cite the law of Moses, the Torah, saying that this kind of woman should be stoned. And they ask, what do you say? And they're asking this, trying to trap him uh, so that they might accuse him of disagreeing with Moses, essentially. And Jesus kind of ignores him. They keep questioning him. And uh, then he, as Matthew indicated, said, the one without sin among you should throw the first stone. Because that in the Deuteronomy law was, you know, the people who are the witnesses against the person are the ones who stone the person, right? So that's Deuteronomy 17. But the one without sin among you well, none of them are without sin. I didn't read any commentaries, but I, I would suspect that Jesus is implying that they also are sexual sinners. That that would be my guess, because maybe that's not true. But if I were writing a story, that would be the case, that all of these accusers had secret dalliances of their own. Um, and one of the reasons I want to emphasize this text in our New Testament reading is because it connects thematically to our Old Testament reading. But I found interesting that these Pharisees are saying that they caught this woman in the act of adultery. And so this kind of woman needs to be stoned. But when you actually read the Old Testament text, if there's a couple caught in adultery, both the male and the female ought to be executed. So like Deuteronomy 22, 22 through 24 indicates this. You know, if a man and a woman are caught having adultery, both the man and the woman are to bear the punishment. So it's interesting to me that this woman is somehow caught in adultery and they're only bringing her to be stoned, which, you know, again, I, I haven't consulted any commentaries to know. You're the John guy, AJ, maybe you'd know. But it, it seems to me like if I were filling in the details, if I were writing an apocryphal edition of this story, one of these Pharisees is is the guy having adultery with her. You know, I, I don't know if that's actually true or not, but um, 
it's it's significant in my mind that they're not bringing a, a male to be stoned along with her, even though that's what the law would require. Yeah, that does seem to fit. Um, I like that. I'm not sure I, that I've heard that before, but yeah, that seems likely. Because it makes sense, too, with just Jesus's words cutting to these religious leaders' hearts so much where they they just drop this thing. Yeah, it might have been so poignant because it was the specific sin in their lives, too. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, but I thought, you know, I think this is an interesting account. Thematically, it pairs well with our Old Testament reading, uh, but Jesus's words at the end, neither do I condemn you. So, you know, they've all left. Jesus asks, where are they? Has anyone condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. And and he says, well, neither do I condemn you. And And I think modern interpreters of the Bible, depending on the kind of church world they're in, would stop telling the story right there. And and on the one hand, I get why the emphasis stops there, because it's it is emphasizing the fact that we're all sinners. We need God's mercy. But Jesus does go on and say, Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. So there's sort of a two-part lesson there. There's the lesson of showing mercy and compassion and forgiveness and realizing that Jesus is wanting to do that himself and does do that, so we ought to be like him. We, we shouldn't be less forgiving than Jesus is. But then also Jesus places the call of discipleship on her, which is go and don't do this anymore. And, and I think that's the call that we all have to take up as we take up the freedom of forgiveness. And, and this connects well with the earlier narratives. Actually, I forget if it's earlier or later, but oh, later. In uh, chapter 8, verse 31, he's talking to these people who are saying they believe him, right? So verse 30, he was saying these things, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Verse 34, he tells them, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Verse 36, so if the son sets you free, you really will be free. And Jesus set this woman free, and he wants her to truly be free, not just from the accusations of the Pharisees, but from whatever sin she might have been involved in. So I think we need to take these things together. We we find great and incomprehensible forgiveness with Jesus, but we also find the heavy demands of, of discipleship. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. That's kind of an interesting detail. Verse 9. Yeah, starting with the older men. So he's just sitting on the ground. Then he stood up. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very peculiar account. Yeah, and I, you know, we are not in that cultural world. So how unusual would it be for someone to stoop down and start writing on the ground with their finger? I don't know. You know, we all have like customary actions that are really easily understood to us because we're in the culture that does them. Uh, So, you know, I was driving, I forget where it was, and apparently someone didn't appreciate my driving, and they, as they cut in front of me, stuck their hand out their window with, with their middle finger up, and if someone wrote that down, anybody in our culture knows what that means. You know, that is not a positive gesture, and it wasn't delightful to receive, but it also wasn't unusual in our world, right? So what Jesus is doing here, maybe it's unusual, maybe it's not. I don't know. What did you do to make him angry? I don't think I did anything, to be honest. Mm. I believe it. There's I, some psychos. I mean, but but that not that like how most traffic things are? You don't realize, like the person who does something that's frustrating probably doesn't realize it but like where were you on the road was it right after you made a turn had was, you just it was changed right lanes a turn. i don't know i can't remember i do think this guy was we've driven so much lately but i think i think it was someone who was like trying i was in the fast lane he was behind me and i was going probably like nine or ten over the speed limit and people on the like slow lane we're going like right at the speed limit or right under so i wasn't going to get over because i'd have to just like 
get in. So he kept getting up close and then eventually he got to a spot where he could go around really fast. There were, there were several of those where it's kind of scary. Cause I'm like, how are you even fitting your car here? Um, so I think it was one of those kind of guys. And then we both happened to be going, turning left. So he got stuck at a stoplight. I would say he was at fault. I, th- I feel like I was just, I was moving, you know? All right. Anything else we should talk about guys? I feel like this was a, a little bit of a monologue. So, so next time I'm going to plan to do nothing but read the sections from how to read the Bible book by book. For the podcast, like read it on the podcast or read as in you're prepping. As in all of my comments, I'm going to just draw from that. Good. I think that'll show how helpful the book will be. Yep. So here's my question for you guys. In our John reading, Nicodemus shows up once again. Did you catch that? In 750? Is this interaction that we see here with Nicodemus and the Pharisees is this an indication that he's understood Jesus's message and he believes in Jesus as the Messiah? Matthew, I'll throw this one to you. I saw that TV show and I think that that's how they made him look. Which TV show? I forget. Is it called The Chosen? I've heard a lot about that. I saw two episodes. Nice. And I think that was in one of them. It was Nicodemus and- came to faith. Well, it was him and Jesus talking. They had a meeting. Yep. Uh, well, that's just what it seemed like. Maybe, I mean, I, depending on how it ends, I miss the other episodes. So I, I don't think know. there's some material that they based a show off that you could probably read the source material for. Mm. Like the Bible? Yep. For example. <laughs> What's that? Oh, you know what it is, because you're reading through the whole thing with us. Oh, right. AJ, what do you think? Where is this at? I in, know he shows up again. Yeah, in John 7. 7, 50? Yep. So the Pharisees, so uh, the servants who were supposed to arrest Jesus came back to the chief pr- priests and Pharisees and said, no one's ever spoken like this. You know, we're, we're not arresting this guy. And they asked them, are you fooled too? Um Look at us. Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? Implied no. But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is a curse. So they're being really negative towards Jesus and to these people. But then Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously and who was one of them, said to them, Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? So it's almost like he's saying, maybe with some measure of courage, hey, I've gone to him and I've heard from him and I know what he's doing. Is that a confession of faith? Is it just a Jesus is an enigma to me, so let's keep waiting and hear him out? Um, But then this is the way they respond to him. They say, you aren't from Galilee too, are you? Investigate and you'll see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So it's kind of like they're warning him, hey, if you take this guy's side, you're, you're not part of us anymore. I think you could take it that way. I think that's a legitimate interpretation. I think that's a theme in John where people encounter Jesus and belief is the result. And so even though he's a negative parallel to the Samaritan woman and when he first shows up in chapter 3, I think that John could be including Nicodemus here. I mean, he... I mean, he's he, defending he, Jesus. Right. And all of it seems like all of the details that John includes are relevant mm-hmm. right so we should be asking why nicodemus like why is this account here why is you know he could have just been an unnamed pharisee says yeah. this and yeah john's um, pretty selective right? right he said there's so much more that can be written yeah um so i think that you could take it that way does nicodemus show up anywhere else in john is the john guy i don't think so i think just these two places okay John 3, 1 through 15. Yeah. I don't know it, the book well enough. I don't think so. I knew he showed up again, and I just, I thought it was yeah, maybe later, but. I thought that was significant. That's good. So what would be the takeaway from, if we're going to conclude Nicodemus came to faith? I think that 
the whole point in chapter three is that he was the most likely person to know what Jesus was talking about. You know, he should have known the scriptures and didn't get it. And then the takeaway from that is that you can be steeped in the scriptures and still miss spiritual realities. And I think that we need to encounter Jesus. And regardless of how the religious leaders are being painted here, you know, the thing we take from them is that it's very easy to be steeped in religious hard-heartedness and not sensitive to the truth. And it does show that no one is beyond reach of Jesus enlightening them to belief. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we may pray for people that, but really think or, you know, have the perspective in our heart that they're never going to get saved. It's, it's yeah beyond them. And yeah, that's kind of where I was going with responding to this was sometimes you can have conversations with people about the Lord or the gospel and feel like there's nothing else to say and they're not getting it. And, and kind of get the idea that, like, you just kind of discount them. When Jesus talks with Nicodemus in chapter 3, it ends without any response from Nicodemus. And to all the appearances from our reading then, we, we would discount Nicodemus. But here, he's the only one among his peers who's recognizing that Jesus may be the Messiah. So the point then would be, don't discount discount people who appear to reject the gospel or fail to respond to it. Kind of like the thinking about it a little bit more is because we think of Nicodemus and his silence compared to the Samaritan woman, like the amount of words that are spoken. And I think he stops talking halfway through the accounts, like verse seven, like you don't hear anything from him. And now mm-hmm. he does speak up. Like that's yeah. the thing. Like silence was his thing before, even though, you know, he brought the question and spoke less and less. And now he does speak up. And so I think that seed of the truth, you know, possibly germinated and is bearing fruit now. We could yeah. Be. yeah, we don't get a clear statement, but here he's at least portrayed in a positive light. And that's different. right? So I think we can, you know, if we don't, like you were saying, see immediate results, we don't see the initial understanding right away. That doesn't mean that eventually someone will, it'll, whatever it is, you know, spiritual growth possibly. Yeah. You know, sanctification in general. Like it, sometimes it takes a, a long, God works on, you know, grows you over a long period of time and change takes a long time. It's not always immediate. Yeah. And I think that's, maybe a theme in John, because sometimes there are people who believe right away and they fail to continue in the belief. And maybe here's an example of someone who didn't believe right away, but endures in belief later on. Right. After the feeding of the 5,000 men, after that, when the bread of life discourse, then that's when a lot of his followers start to fall away. Yeah. Those specific followers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, John is pretty negative towards people he identifies as having believed Jesus, right? He'll talk about them as having believed, and then it seems like the same people, especially in like John 8, 30 and following, it seems like the people who believed these things are the same ones when he calls them to know the truth and be set free. They respond by saying, we've never been enslaved. Abraham's our father. And then he tells them the devil is your father. So John isn't like when when John says that someone believed, that's not always a good thing or the right kind of belief, maybe. What do you think, Matthew? I concur. You did know that AJ just said he hates Andrew Peterson. That's okay. I hate Andrew Peterson too. Jordan Peterson. <laughs> His music <laughs> is I got terrible. The wrong, wrong guy. The Wing Feather saga is garbage. I have not read that yet. I read it a couple of years. I read the whole series. I really liked the first book. And I felt like the rest of the series, and I know this is not the way most people, most people love it, but for me, the last two, three, and four just did not fulfill what the first book set up. I thought, I don't know what I thought. I was maybe looking for something a little bit more epic, but. Interesting. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, I've heard some people really love it. Yeah, and I think it deserves it's good enough to for me to go back to it. I think I should probably. Um, and books hit you a different way, you know, different parts of your life and different ages and stuff. And I think if I would have 
certainly read it as a young adult or, uh, you know, an, an older youth. I think it probably would have been a really good read, but yeah. And maybe mm. as I get older and wiser, it'll be better yeah. too. I don't know. You know, it's weird. Speaking of age, I am the same age that David was when he began ruling as king. Wow. I think that's nuts. You know what also is nuts? Tom Cruise is the same age as Ian McKellen was when he played Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. That is crazy. That is nuts. And you think social media isn't worth anything. Yeah. You're right. That was super. I should start my accounts again. Yeah. And I've, you know, I've, I would like to live in a world where I just had like an iPod again, like an iPod shuffle. Sure. And a landline and then a track phone. Go back to my high school days. That would be so nice. Can't go back. Can only go forward. Can't live in the past. Mm, That's some good advice. As we wrap up this week's podcast, we want to remind everyone about the Amnion Walk for Life, which is coming up June 4th. It's 9.30 to 1130 a.m. And the location is at Eden Baptist Church. Now, do we need to sign up for that? You do need to register, and you can do that at the Amnion website or with the newsletter link that Josh sends out. Yeah, because I think Resurrection Church has a team that you sign up with, right? That sounds Yes. And I think you're supposed to try to get people to sponsor you to help raise money for Amnion. And is there another thing going on in the life of our church in the next couple weeks? Yeah, Summerfest uh, is June 11th. At Resurrection. At Resurrection, right here on the property, 2 p.m. to 5 p.m., or far earlier if you're helping out with it. Yeah, so if you're helping out, I think you're running some carnival-like games. If you're a guest on our property, it's a good time to be able to... Uh, see our building for the first time perhaps to get to know some people at the church and uh, to just have some fun with your family it sounds like there will also be free food so come one come all this podcast is a ministry of resurrection church in burnsville minnesota the end